This episode is brought to you by Culture IQ. The Culture IQ platform combines integrated culture management software with expert support from Culture IQ's team of strategists. This is so you can develop a culture that's aligned with your business goals and drive competitive advantage. Culture IQ is the only culture management platform and employee survey software that helps you turn employee data into action. Culture IQ's benchmark employee survey, intuitive culture software, and seasoned culture strategy team gives you unparalleled insight into what's happening with your organization, plus guidance on exactly where to focus next. To learn more, head over to giantsandcrowns.com forward slash culture IQ. Culture IQ is another company that we can't say enough about. Great company, great service, great friends, uh, but also if you're, if you're focused on culture and tracking it and doing well at it, Culture IQ is where you want to be. My name is uh, Dr. Jamar Mills. I am um, an educator. And the problem I'm solving for is to correct the inequities that exist um, between um, social classes and education. We find that uh, depending on where you fall in the spectrum, you may receive a different type of education. And then uh, are you also may lack the resources to receive um, a quality education and I, I'm working to solve that problem nice I remember when, when we spoke last week you were like you were in the throes of a whole lot of travel are you still still traveling now I am and so um, this month has been heavy with uh, with the traveling I've been back and forth to DC um, just did some training with some principals as well as uh, the future project and what we call dream directors which I'll dig through a little bit later um to help those principals identify big issues that they were having in their, their schools and then working with uh, someone who's a creative, you know, out-of-the-box thinker who's coming in to, like, put a new spin on policies and initiatives to think through this problem with principals and then come up with new ideas and ways to attack it despite the constraints that the district or the unions may put on what you can and can't do. Got it. I definitely want to get into it. So let's let's kind of start back with, I guess, Jamar Mills and when you became Jamar Mills, or were you always Jamar Mills? Like, what? How did you get started? Uh, where where do you come from? Yeah, so so I'm um, I'm from Patterson, New Jersey. Um, I grew up from very humble beginnings. My mom had me when she was 16. Had my sister when she was 17. Um, we grew up in uh, housing projects. Uh, very, you know, traditional. I, I'm a, in a sense, it's sad that I would say this, but um, traditional. You know, it was violence, it was crime, it was prostitution, it was uh, a lot of uh, drug trade, uh, cops, things like that. Um, I rule. I survived a lot of that. Learned how to navigate um, through all of those issues. Um, had some some real life changing events. Uh, one involved me having 400 stitches in my face. Uh, and through sports, actually really like getting focused on that and seeing that people showed an interest in me, realizing that I was worthy, um, I was able to make it to college. And so when I got there, I majored in mathematics because uh, essentially it was my strongest subject. Um, I earned so my bachelor's in science and math. Uh, from there, I began teaching math uh, in Eastside in North New Jersey. Uh, for two years, I did that. And while pursuing my master's, 
So once earning my master's, I began interviewing for a position to be a chairperson of mathematics. Um, and so I was 25 and they gave me an opportunity at Shabazz High School to be the chairperson of the math department. Um, I did that for two years and was promoted to vice principal. And then uh, one year into the vice principalship, um, they began making recommendations for me to be the principal at Shabazz. And probably not because I was just like this amazing leader. At least I didn't think so at the time. It was just the worst school. They had tried three principals. All three of those principals had failed. I would be the fourth principal in four, in four years. I was just turning 28, you know, literally no experience in the sense of timing, you know, tenure. But uh, I got the position as the principal. And in one school year, we we moved the test scores from 36% to 61% in language arts and from about 17% to 23% in mathematics. And that's where it kind of like all took off. I would say every every news camera in New Jersey, New York, kind of like the tri-state area, wanted to be in the building and figure out like, how did we do it? Because everyone knew that this was a bottom 15% school in the nation and in the bottom in New Jersey. You know, the 328 schools, high schools, we were ranked 317. And so to see that, quick transition everybody wanted to know what happened um they shot a documentary um and all types of things by year four we got up as high as 75 percent proficiency in language arts and 32 or 33 percent proficiency in mathematics um and at that point i was introduced or established a partnership with the future project within my school and then just on a grander scale wanted to do that work um across the nation and that was the opportunity offered to me by the future project which i said this is definitely what i want to do i don't just want to impact a city but i, I want to impact the nation um and from there uh, it's just been sky's the limit i mean your organization has supported me in other endeavors that i've pursued such as like opening my own network of schools um and then also just ensuring that I'm in the places that I need to be in, whether it be speaking conferences or trainings uh, with future project principals or what have you, uh, to really push the agenda forward to provide or correct the inequities that exist in our youth in, in these uh, schools, and particularly our urban youth. They're like the lack of resources, uh, whether it be dollars and cents or actually just uh, quality teachers, you know, quality leaders that are assisting them in, in getting to the thing that they're most passionate about as opposed to just collecting that check. Right. So like when you, when you touched on that, I do want to, there's a lot that you, you spoke to that I want to, want to unpackage all of it. One of the things though, that, that, that is top of mind is that, uh, transition that you made with Shabazz. Like, how did you come in 28 years old? You're the, you said the fourth, the fourth person to come in. Who, yeah, fourth, yeah. Fourth principal in four years. Right. So like, 28, fourth principal in four years, um, no experience in the space before. What it is? What did? What did you do? Like, what was? What were the? What were the actions that were put in place that really transformed the? Transformed the school. Yeah, and so it's funny that I can speak to like specifics now. When I was going through it, right, it was like intrinsic. I just knew that these were things that we should do. Um, but you know, going through school, getting a doctorate and things like that. And now I can like attach a name to the things that I was doing and say like, oh, this was 
research base, you know, back in 1931 and 1938 and things like that. But uh, I would say the first thing I did was around mindset uh, for both staff and students. We wanted to ensure that the teachers believed that they could actually move the students to where they needed to be and also believed in themselves, right? It was extremely important that they believed that they were capable and equipped what they needed to connect with young people and get them to where they needed to be. So that was the first piece. Um, and uniquely enough, because we were in such a bad predicament, um, fear was at the top of mind for mindset, right? Like I was able to really harp on the fact that, hey, we're in such a space that if we don't get this right, this is not only gonna affect the students, but it's gonna affect you, right? These jobs will disappear. They will come in and, you know, separate the building into two schools. And I don't think that's the things that we want to have happen. Um, and so that was a powerful tool and just getting teachers to say, we're gonna give you a shot and, you know, if you can maintain the promises that you're making to us, we'll, we'll definitely have your back. And I was able to do that in a variety of ways. And so the next thing from the mindset piece was about systems, right? The school hadn't identified many of the systems that were necessary to have a school function the way it needed to be. And so as a vice principal, I built the master schedules. And what I learned is that, you know, we need to target the footsteps of the children and know that they belong in this particular space of a building so that, you know, you're not going from one end of the building to a whole nother end from math to English. And this, this building is 330,000 square feet. So um, from there, we implemented systems from even where students enter the building. I actually instituted what was called morning convocation. And so for 20 minutes of the morning, the students, the entire school, they got me. I was in front of them giving my motivational speeches, playing speeches from other motivational speakers, such as some and historic figures like, you know, Malcolm X, the school was called Malcolm X Shabazz, from Martin Luther King to Marcus Garvey to Eric Thomas. You know, anything that I needed to give them, and even um Stephen uh Covey, the uh seven habits of highly effective teens, we had like a study during convocation about those things. Um, and these were things that really allowed us to hone in on what students needed. Because uh, I don't know if you experience school like this, but when students are inside the classroom and you're trying to give them morning announcements, sometimes teachers are doing their own thing. Yeah. Or students are doing their own thing. Yeah. Right. So they're not hearing what you're giving to them. So to have them all in one space every morning, they all left out of there with the same message and understanding of what we were here to accomplish for the day. Um, other systems that we put in place was just like really important, which was another lever was around, you know, data and disaggregating the data. So we had uh, bi-weekly submissions of our learning walks. And from there, I was able to identify where we were weakest in our teacher practice. And then from that, we used that data to implement the, the, the fourth lever, which is professional development. And so we understood that you could have as much education as you need, but these things are happening in real time. And we need to address them and equip teachers with that ability to actually engage the students and move the ball forward. And so um, the last thing, or I would say the fifth lever, was just inspecting what we ex expected. So like we had to monitor this stuff religiously. If we did not do that, we were in trouble. And the way in which I was able to do it was I broke my administrative cabinet 
into three work streams versus grade level principals. And so again, traditional high schools, most of them have like a ninth grade principal or vice principal, a 10th grade, 11th grade, and so on and so forth. So what I thought was important was I needed someone to only focus on climate and culture. I needed an administrator to only focus on the academic piece. And if climate and culture was an issue, to shift it on somebody else's plate. And then we need someone to focus only on the schedule and the support services, right? Because how do we fit in the, the, the in-class support, the push-in for students that have uh, disabilities or those that have issues with attendance? Their schedule was key into making all of that. And then for me, I kind of sat in the center of that and pushed in on each stream to ensure that it was all working cohesively. Um, and I tell you, man, in one, like I said, one year, it was night and day. And uh, people walking into the building who had experienced what it was before just couldn't believe it. Yeah. Either could I, because I was there. <laughs> and I wasn't certain that it could be fixed. To be quite honest, <laughs> as a vice principal, I was like, I don't know if this for me, man. <laughs> <laughs> so I get what did what did you what did you do to 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 get yourself rallied up into it? Yeah, so um, you know, the alumni was pushing me, the teacher body was pushing me, and they couldn't get it. They they couldn't get me to make the move. I was kind of like, yeah, I hear you, but I'm fine as a vice principal. Uh, and I had to do orientation and it was a senior orientation and I came in and, you know, I'm letting them know, like, these are the rules. This is what you have to do. And the student just yells out, you know, who is our principal? And I said, you know, I don't know who the principal is, but as soon as I know, I'll let you know, but I'm going to be in support of that person. So we got to do this right this year. And another student said, well, why can't you be our principal? And I said, I don't think you want me to be the principal. Because the things that y'all get away with, I'm just not going to tolerate. Not like I, I will go to whatever measure to ensure that we don't tolerate that. And the, and the student stood up and said, that's what we need. And when that happened, I was just like, wow, the, if the students believe in me more than myself, then how can I actually call myself a leader? And at that point, I submitted my paperwork to uh, apply for the job. And they gave it to me. So all of that stuff, I didn't get the job until... Um, about August 29th yeah around August 29th and the school year started teachers were coming in on September 3rd wow so a couple of days before the start yeah and, and I had 28 vacancies 28 vacancies employee wise or uh, teacher wise yep teacher teacher and administrator yep so you had to fulfill those 28 in was it four days five days yep as fast as I can and I would say um, one of the things that North did really well um, when they transitioned to a new superintendent was they created a system to accumulate thousands of resumes and then for principals to have access to. They also created a ton of job fairs for us to really just allow us to identify candidates swiftly. And the way I saw it was, I may not identify the best teachers, but my systems will be strong enough. And then I'll train them up to either reach their ceiling or break through. And then over the four years, we got better because we sift through some of the poor performing teachers, improve those teachers who wanted to be great, and then um, hired more quality as the years went on. Right.
This episode of Giants and Crowns is brought to you by Hired.com. Hired.com is the leading job marketplace that connects tech talent with the world's most innovative companies. Hired combines intelligent job matching technology with a personalized career coach to help you find a job you love. Through Hired, both job candidates and companies have transparency into salary offers, competing opportunities, and job details. This level of insight is unmatched, making the recruiting process easier than ever before. Companies of all sizes, including WeWork, Booking.com, and Dropbox, leverage Hired for their tech hiring needs. If you're hiring, sign up for Hired at resources.hired.com forward slash giants, and you'll receive a $20 Amazon gift card, and Hired will also donate $20 to Code Interactive to help Code Interactive on their mission to provide computer science education to all students. Again, for more details, check out resources.hired.com forward slash giants, or head over to giantsandcrowns.com forward slash hired. So you know, it's it sounds like the, and correct me if I'm wrong. It sounds like the this change started with you, in the sense that there's something that not only the students saw in you, but also um, your colleagues and the rest of the administration saw in you, which is why they took that leap and they were so gung ho about you coming on. Um, one is, do do you think that's right? And two, it sounds like you need people to to drive the organizations, no matter what school it's in, uh, you need awesome people to kind of be a version or some derivative of you um, to, to really enact that change and inspire the students, shift the mindset, get the processes going, get the systems going. Is that true? Yes. Um, and, uh, yes and yes. Right. Uh, those, those, those staff members, those students, they did believe in me. They did believe that I had the, the, the right demeanor, right. The, the correct level of acumen to really just move the building where it needed to go. Yeah. Um, and I just had to deliver on those promises. And yeah, you're one person. And so as one person, you need to lead and people need to follow. Um, and that oftentimes mean that you are amongst the group of followers and that you're not just giving directives and expecting it to happen, but you're able to demonstrate like, no, nah, we can do this. I'll come in your class and show you that these 25 young men will comply if you're doing it this way. And it was things like that, that, that opened Adele's eye to say, like, you know, he's really in the mix. He is with the students. He's talking to them. He allows me as an adult to say, hey, this student did X. And he deals with it. He doesn't question, you know, whether I am telling the truth or not. And so it was, you know, real simple things that got the teachers to not only say we believe in him, but also to, to say that we'll follow him. And this will go for schools across the nation is a, a strong leader that is more than a figurehead will always improve the functions of a school and also get their staff on board because um I wouldn't claim to be the smartest that was uh in inside of the school but I but I would say that I was the most dedicated I was the most passionate I was prepared to read what I needed to read I was prepared to demonstrate it if I need to model something. And I was willing to hold students accountable. And that was something that I know that some people were hesitant on. You know, they, they would feel sorry for our young people. And I and I think that our young people took advantage of that. Yeah, I, I think that supposed, yeah. at the risk of like 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 interjecting opinion here, I I do think that there's a when, when when things seem to be challenging, there is a desire by by human beings in general to kind of 
rest in our laurels and look for the easier way out. That's me just kind of, I think there's a, there's a desire for us to be great, but the easier route is often the routes most taken. And if you open that up yeah. and you leave that open to folks, people will take it. Um, but that being said, like you, 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 set, you sort of set a new standard for folks. What I, what I want to touch on is like, what got you to that point? You taught, you touched, you touched on the 400 stitches. Like what, what kind of activities from a character standpoint, life standpoint, got you to that point where you were able not only to navigate and work with say 25 young men in a, in a, in a, in a school setting, classroom setting, but then also, um, be this figure, this person, this, um, to have this perspective and mindset that allowed you to be a successful, um, educator. Yeah, that's a really good question because I, I believe that unbeknownst to me that I was being prepared to be the principal at this school or leader in general, that the experiences that I was having in my life were actually learning lessons that I needed to have in order to be in the space to work with these these uh, black and brown students. And so really, uh, I saw me in them. Right. Right. And so I knew at, at 15 years old, growing up in the project type of things that I was doing. And I also know that the 400 stitches in my face were warranted, were warranted by the company I was keeping. So, you know, I, I hung out with a lot of the older men and the 400 stitches stemmed from us, them actually taking me to a club in our neighborhood and they assaulted this guy like really bad. I, I actually thought that they killed the guy. He like put his head through the window it was all cut up. Like, it was really bad. And um, later on in that week, on a Saturday, a group of my, my my age group of friends, we had left our projects and were in other people's neighborhood, again, starting trouble. Um, and we happened to meet up with these older gentlemen. And they recognized me. And they were like, you know, that's the guy, you know, that was with those other guys. So, though I was 15, and they were 19, 20, 25 they, they like he was in the club he's old enough you know yeah and so um they they i don't know where they would get it from it was a large metal piece it seemed to be like a like a window frame they hit me in the face with it you know uh we we had a fight we had a tussle whatever um eventually there was an officer um near the white castle in our neighborhood that came out and kind of like pulled his gun out and got everybody to run away but i lost a massive amount of blood um, like it was literally like ketchup squirting out of my face. So it was like right above my right eye and then comes down uh, my cheek. There's just like this huge, it's a scar. Um, and so that experience, right, just was, was life altering in a sense that you need to understand that this environment that you're playing with is, is real. And there's other things that there's things you're going to need to do differently if you're going to survive. And so when I went into the school system from experiences like that, which I could tell you more um, from not just about me, but from my friends, yeah. <clears throat> I understood that I needed to expedite the students that I was servicing and their role to success. They needed to understand how important education was for me. Like it literally was a great equalizer. Education for me was a, was a great equalizer. It was the thing that moved my family out the projects it was the thing that helped me to buy a home. And I'm not speaking traditional, right? I'm speaking all education, right? We're not just saying what happens inside those four walls, but what the internet allowed for me to learn, 
while I was pro- uh, pursuing my bachelor's or my master's. But all of these things set me up to be in a predicament that I knew these students. I could expedite the process to a connection because we live in the same neighborhoods. I know what it's like to have roaches. I know what it's like to have mice. I know what it's like to not have be able to wash your clothes. I know what it feels like to be ridiculed because you don't have the same sneakers. I I know I knew all those things. So no excuse that they were coming with. I did. I I had a solution for all of it, and I had to educate my staff on how to go about that. Like he's not behaving this way because he doesn't like you. He didn't eat last night, and you are telling him that he can't go get something. And they're like, oh. So it was, it was things like that that I think the average administrator who was kind of just like being introduced to the system may not have the, the level of, I, I would say, uh, diversity training that I've had with real life experiences to move my students to the place I needed them to go. That's interesting. Today's episode is brought to you by Brilliant. Head over to brilliant.org forward slash giants and crowns or go to giantsandcrowns.com forward slash brilliant. You know, um, one of the reasons why we started Giants and Crowns uh, is to really focus on and exercise extracting lessons learned. We're hosting these conversations in the hopes that the actions taken by our guests the decisions they've made can help inform the decisions that we will all make as business owners, as generalists, as scientists, as designers, as photographers, as, as producers, as creatives, um, but even much more so than all that as lifelong learners. So I, I fundamentally think that, and I think you, you guys would agree as well, to be a great thinker, to be a great learner, you have to have multiple perspectives, multiple models, a diversity in perspective. Um, you need to be multidisciplinary. Brilliant is hands down one of the best places to polish up and do that in an engaged and active, interactive way. And, you know, there's, there's actually this really dope quote by Charlie Munger. He talks about Charlie Munger, the partner of Warren Buffett um, over at Brookshire Hathaway and also an inspiration for the podcast. What he says is the first rule is that you've got to have multiple models because if you have just one or two that you're using, the nature of human psychology is such that you'll torture reality so that it fits your models. And the models have to come from multiple disciplines because all of the wisdom of the world is not to be found in one little academic department. That's crucial. Brilliant provides frameworks that are helpful for thinking and solving problems. Brilliant is a place where you can achieve true understanding by getting to the heart of a concept. Their courses are written by leading instructors and researchers who have worked to provoke natural curiosity and guide you through an interactive exploration of deep concepts and principles and ideas. So definitely check out Brilliant. Head over to brilliant.org forward slash Giants and Crowns or giantsandcrowns.com forward slash brilliant. Support Giants and Crowns by doing that and the first 200 folks from Giants of Crowns who sign up get uh, 20% off their first entire uh, premium subscription year. Um, so sign up, check it out. Let us know how, you, how, how you're enjoying it. Um, when we send out our weekly updates, respond with a screenshot or something. That, that'd be awesome. Let us know that you're part of the crew. Um, all right. Thank you so much. So how, how, how would you suggest that a person who doesn't have that background, uh, doesn't have those kinds of experiences, how can they authentically connect with students in a way that uh, motivates them to move in a, in a more positive direction? Yeah, so I, I think it's dedication. And so one of the things that I would always say, because I got into administration really young, 
at 25, you know, my supervisor, I mean, I'm supervising men that are 50, 55, 60 years old have been doing this for 25 years. So my advice to them would, you need to spend 24 hours doing something to gain the experience that a person who's been doing it for 24 years has, right? And so you want to be present at those games because you need to see how those students interact outside the building. You want to be inside your classroom. You want to be in the hallways. You want to spend time with the people in which you're servicing, whether those are the adults of the building or the students of the building, so you can really learn from them and not think of yourself as only the teacher. You have to begin to listen, be reflective and say, hmm, now I can understand how to navigate this because I've literally done a week or two weeks of action research and accumulated, let's say, 50 hours worth of data. And now I know how to deal with this particular student. When two weeks ago, I couldn't say that because I was just making decisions blindly based on theory that I've read in books. And so I would say that time is the answer to that question. You, all administrators, anyone who's listened to this, who is in education that feels disconnected, you got to put the work in. You got to put the time in. No one gets better by just telling people what to do. If you want to learn the people you service to make them better, then you really need to be, you need to show up. If they have events outside the school, ask about it, attend. If the parent is saying, hey, can you come out and do X, Y, and Z? Be excited to do that. If they're asking you to open the school to have an event that's non-traditional, but within the rules, let it happen. All the sports events, all the clubs, any of those things that can push you out into the neighborhood, do it. Like, you know, I was a firm believer that I needed to go to some of my students' house if I was going to get them to come to school. And you need to go. You need to you need to leave the school building and see the neighborhood that they're living in to understand how different it is when they enter the school building and why they sometimes behave the way they do. Or you can't earn their respect. Well, what's your... Um... You know, so as I'm as I'm hearing you talk, I'm thinking. So I come from more of a, I guess, more of a, a business background, more of an entrepreneurial background. Um, yeah. But even as I say that, I don't think that um, what you've done and what you guys do, a future project, and what schools who who turn around, what they do, I don't see it as that different from business or entrepreneurship, especially if you're running a good organization. Because you, a lot of the things yep. you're, you're touching on are knowing your customer. So you're you knowing the people are going to be impacted by this this product, this this value we're creating. You're creating a school and experience that's intended to propel these kids to higher degrees and to really kind of deliver to them. You need to know them and know where they live, know what they're about, know what drives them, knows what, know what motivates them. Um, I guess so, so I ask that, I say all that also wondering like what, what do you think tends to be um, sort of like a, I guess a, a, a deterrent or a a a, uh, a point of friction for potential shifts or, or turnarounds that take place across different schools. Yep, um, I think there's a there's a there's not just one, um, but I'll I'll touch on a few. Uh, there's a variety of them. Um, one one though is definitely uh, the dedication piece, right? That some people. Uh, aren't as dedicated as others and and aren't really there to do the work but more so about you know living establishing a certain lifestyle outside of the work 
which the 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 job itself allows that to happen right and then i also think that uh, like a business uh if you if you aren't uh aware of the the clientele that you're servicing then you're gonna find yourself in in a bad predicament and then uh, oh the last thing i want to touch on it is um or the deterrent oh yeah we're trying a lot of stuff we're trying to innovate we're having all these new technologies enter the space and we're not given some of the things that have uh been the backbone of the country's educational system a chance anymore so i think those are things that stagnate progress because you're really just saying like that didn't work get something new oh that didn't work get something new that didn't work neither we'll try something new we'll hire somebody who can do that thing that we thought we wanted to do a little bit better and and it becomes like you're treating the the students or the staff more like lab rats to figure out if you can have this amazing breakthrough because you have an endless stream of taxpayers dollars right and so you can keep on trying and trying and trying and maybe you'll win or maybe you won't and i think the consensus across the nation is that we haven't been winning <laughs> in all of the things that we've been trying and so we have to just identify some foundational things that we're going to do really well that we know work and 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 is that tension i think that point of contention that if we just keep going at it even if it takes a year or two years we'll have breakthroughs as opposed to switching out and trying something new right so like what what are those what are some of those foundational things yep um i would say curriculum is extremely important we have to identify a strong curriculum that helps guide teachers and getting students to master the standards that states have established right and teachers need to really dig into those curriculums and create strong lesson plans that are actually going to get students to retain information that's one thing um another thing would be feedback loops right if if i'm not always inside of a classroom having conversations with teachers about ways to improve the lessons that they're delivering or the pedagogy that they're actually looking to strengthen then we're going to find ourselves in a poor predicament so i think i think those things are extremely important i think another thing that is extremely important is understanding the policy that actually guides the operations of the school oftentimes you'll learn that teachers are entering into a space and they're just doing what the norms are and the norms might not actually be the proper thing to do and so we need to educate ourselves we need to really know what we are guide what the rules are and what we're guided by then we need to know what we've been provided with and then we need to work really hard at designing lessons that are going to engage students so that they can actually retain information and move on to the next level because the lack of engagement is where i think we begin to experience the disconnect whether it be students not wanting to walk in the building or whether it be students not wanting to sit inside of the classroom they they're just saying why do i want to go in there i'm going to go to sleep it's boring all they're doing is talking and then what they're talking about doesn't interest me and i think dedication from administrators teachers um lesson planning feedback 
and professional development, those are the things that's going to get us to where we need to be. Yeah. You know, that, that sounds that sounds good, but it, it also sounds pretty tough. And I, I say that, I say yeah, that, yeah. <laughs> um, I said also just because, you know, so there are, there's sort of like this looming belief that teachers aren't paid much. Um, and yep. if you're in a place like Jersey, I don't, I've never lived in Jersey, but uh, if it's anything like New York, it's expensive. Like living in the living and surviving is expensive. Like you have your bills and obligations, all these things. You kind of touched on um, people maintaining a certain lifestyle. So it's it's almost like it's a it's sort of a cocktail of of events that need to kind of come together to motivate an individual who's working in in, in education or a school or, or really anything to be motivated enough to kind of endure the the suck like the 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 tough part of figuring yep. out the the curriculum so that it is engaging i guess i guess i, I say that wondering like what is what have, what have been some examples of of people who have broken through or 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 i guess teams or whatever whatever have you or even with future projects that have broken through and how they broke through given that cocktail and so I think, um, so I'll start with, uh, the, the pacing. Cause that like struck me when you were talking about it. Um, I do think teachers need to be paid more. I think educators need to be paid more. Um, but in hindsight, most school districts only go for 180 to 186 days. And so you're off of 365 days of the year. You're, you're ultimately off. Um, almost half the year, right? And so, but the days that you're on, the expectation is that you're going to go extremely hard to do what you need to do for students. And in some instances, that isn't the case. Some people are kind of just like, "I'm gonna be here. I'm gonna do what I need to do, or I do the bare minimums, and then I'm gonna I'm gonna move on." I think the example is a, a passionate person. Money is not going to make you a successful educator. So like if, if money is your, your thing, you should probably pursue business or some other type of profession. This is an intrinsic driven thing. Like you have to love what you're doing. It's rewarding because you are pouring into other people. You're providing a service that's going to ultimately improve the life of a third person. And so when people are quick with passion, you see them break through in ways in which that you've never seen them before. And so, for example, if we speak about the future project, right, the character that we introduce inside of a school is called the dream director. I like to think of the dream director as this like mashup between a social worker and a guidance counselor on steroids. And so the goal there is to actually tap into what the student's passion is. And oftentimes in schools, we've identified four things that they may be interested in and said, you know, pick one of those buckets. With the future project, we're going in and saying, what interests you what's your dream and you know we'll have students say things like i want to be rich and then we dig deep into that we unpack that we essentially say you know doing what and if doing that how does it impact your community or how you can you create it so that it has impact not only on your your community um, not only on yourself but on your community and your family so when you're doing that type of work when you're going that deep with students it is the rewards of seeing them be successful that drives you to work harder and harder and harder. And then time just becomes a thing. Like I was putting in 16 hour days every day, but I didn't feel it. 
because my graduation rate rose ten percent in one school year. Right, and and it's and it wasn't just me, but it was teachers that were just as passionate me as me, and they weren't punching the clock at the end of the day. They wanted to do clubs, they wanted to be at the games, they wanted to do more within the school, and so I think those are, I would say that the key ingredient to seeing a successful educator do what they do is they have to truly be passionate about the work, and if there is a hint of like indecisiveness of what they want to do or not do. I think those are where the breakdowns lie. And then the systems uh, come to the aid of everyone, right? Because, you know, you're not as passionate as you once were, but you've tenured and, you know, you're protected, right? Or you, uh, you've you been here for so long or you're new. Let's just say you're new to the profession and you've had experiences that are like not as great as you want to be, but you're young enough to to, tr- to pivot and move on to something else so you get out the game. But the damage is already done. The damage is already done uh, to the institution or to the to the to the educator. Not to the educator, but but to the people that that right. you were supposed to provide a service to. Right. So is it? I guess when you say they've moved on, I th- I, th- I imagine they move on because. I guess I'm stuck on the pay piece. <laughs> I'm stuck on like the the yeah, yeah, the, yeah. the outside environments, like these, because we're all we. I think we all we want to do great things, but I guess like the structure, the environment that we're in requires that you have to pay bills and all these other things. This episode of Giants and Crowns is brought to you by High Five. Recently named one of Fast Company's most innovative companies of 2018, High Five simplifies business collaboration with a conferencing platform that builds connected cultures. It's the only all-in-one conferencing solution, including intuitive cloud software and purpose-built meeting room hardware. Plus, it's a high-quality experience with a 4K HDR camera and industry-leading audio powered by Dolby Voice. Growing fast with customers in over 100 countries, High Five is already trusted by the likes of Harry's, Rue La La, Expensify, The Atlantic, and Betterment. To learn more and start simplifying your team's video and audio conferencing, visit giantsandcrowns.com forward slash high five. Overall, like how do you how do you scale, how do you grow something like that when cost is a constraint? Um I think so one is a matter of need right and so we had to demonstrate that this was something that students wanted inside of their i mean sorry uh districts wanted inside of their schools so that was extremely important and once identifying that there is a large pool of philanthropic uh billionaires or there are funders for that matter who are interested in innovation within education or traditionally called education reform right and so what we were able to do at the Future Project is work with many of them and pitch them on the idea that this is something that's needed inside of school to educate the whole child. And like in, in the education, as you speak, is uh, social emotional learning. And I think a lot of times we just aren't dealing with that. We're just dealing with academics and students uh, either fall to the wayside because they can't connect to it or or they show out because no one's really addressing the skills that they need. And so we were able to do that by working with uh, really successful billionaires such as Jeff Bezos, uh, the owner of Amazon, uh, even in Detroit, uh, Dan Gilbert, when we demonstrated a need in Detroit for the high schools 
uh, he committed a, a million dollars immediately to fund those dream directors inside those schools. And it's a hard thing to maintain, but it's, it's consistent and we grow it and it's the way we scale it. So, you know, to mention, like Jeff Bezos is one of probably five or six billionaires that we're able to receive funding from to do the work. And then in the midst of that, we have a research lab. And so the research that we do to demonstrate that, yes, this thing that we do inside of schools is actually improving student achievement is what keeps them coming to recommit. Because I don't want to paint the illusion that you can get a thing without demonstrating that it actually works. You may can get it started, but I don't think you can continue and grow to scale if you can't demonstrate that it actually works to do what it said it would do. And um, that's what we've been able to do really successfully at the Future Project, which has allowed us to go from the East Coast, you know, and just Newark, New York and New Haven to now be in Detroit, Chicago, Los Angeles, San Francisco, you know, D.C., Philly, um, and potentially pursuing new markets in Miami and Baltimore and uh, some other cities. How long has that has uh, Future Project been around? Is it is it eight years? Yeah, we're we're um, at the end of this year. It'll be eight. When you when you came on, you came on around like four years ago, right? Yep. Yep. W- was so where they were only three years old. Yeah. So like, where was the org? Like, was it had, had it like? Wh- I guess I'm I guess I'm trying to understand what changed um, infrastructure wise. One to to kind of. Like what? What? What allowed it to scale in that way? Apart from just the capital came from Bezos and Gilbert and a host of other folks. Like, what shifted? So when when we began the process, it was twenty five of us, um, and I think that what we we did really really well was we captured the data, we monitored it the way it needed to be monitored as we built our programs. We we refused to 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 outsource, and so as opposed to saying let's go find the top consultant to help us build this thing. Why don't we just hire the best and the brightest in the field, those entrepreneurs who have done amazing work in the world. And so we have people on the team that are Harvard grads, Yale grads, and then some of them just have high school diplomas, but their work in the world is substantial, right? To have someone who just have a high school diploma, start a nonprofit at the age of 17, get the attention of Ralph Lauren, create student centers within his neighborhood in Canarsie, Brooklyn, and and then go on a, a world tour for the next four or five years of his life, right? It's amazing. And so we, we want to be able to teach young people how to do such a thing. And so we had a sector that focused solely on dream directing, and then it was a sector that focused solely on the research so that we can capture it and fine tune what we were doing that work. And then the last piece was human resources, right? Because you still have a group of people all over the place who you need to manage, provide, you know, healthcare for and ensure that they're doing their part um, within the work that they signed up for. Got it. So what's the, what's been like the, I guess, how do you describe a dream director and, and what it takes to find that person? So a dream director is a person who is, has an entrepreneur spirit, who is really excited about teaching other people 
to monetize anything that they're doing uh, for the right reasons. So whether it's a social justice movement and how do we empower people in order to sustain a life doing that, such as, you know, a Black Lives Matter, how does that become sustainable? We want to teach students how to do that, if that's what they're passionate about. Um, And so some dream directors, like I said, are traditionally educated college grads who go inside of schools and and do the work. And we train them. We train them extensively. Uh, There's actually a national learning day every Monday. There is three weeks in the summer that they're trained in the month of July. And they go to academies four times throughout the year for the training. And to become a dream director, that's something that uh, I remember bringing a uh, dream director through the process. And I said, man, if I had to go through that, I don't know if I would have made it. <laughs> um, so seriously, <laughs> it's a lot of work to, to be chosen uh, to be a dream director. But what it looks like is depending on the city you apply to, you'll, you'll begin phase one. And with that team of dream directors and what we call chief dream directors in a city, they'll begin to set up a bunch of challenges. And so it isn't just this, the docs come complete a test and do this random thing, but you'll enter that city and you may be responsible for mapping out the resources that you can identify for a student who has a dream to do X or a dream to do Y and a dream to do Z. And we want to see that you can actually do that. Or you may be responsible for planning an event for, you know, 200 students or at least given input on an event that's in progress um, outside of just filling out the traditional application. Um, And when you complete the traditional application, you're required to submit a website if you have one. You're required to submit a video talking about the life that you've actually been living and what things you've accomplished. And then once you make it through those phases, you now have to do a national uh, event of challenges throughout the the city of New York, sometimes it's in L.A. It all really depends on um, where the mass amounts of candidates are located. And people who make it to phase three, they actually get flown out to wherever we are to complete these challenges. And if you make it through all of that, you, <laughs> you'll get hired and then and then you'll start your actual training. Nice. Nice. So how, how big is Future Project now? Right now, we're over 100 employees, and we're in nine different cities. Um, I think I mentioned most of them. I, think I said Philly, Washington, New York, Connecticut, New Jersey, uh, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Detroit, and uh, Chicago. And then our hub, our, our actual headquarters is in New York. Got it. So now, do each of those markets... I mean, though there are different ge- ge- there are de- different locations. So, do they all have like different behaviors in terms of how you need to work with students and how you need to engage with the community, um, or do you find that um, what works in one market tends to translate pretty well to others? Um, some of it is replicable, but what we try to do that is extremely important is we want to identify people within your community of your community, or at least. Um, has been there for a significant part of uh, significant time. So we don't want to just drop people in to LA market, right? And you've been living in New York for the last 20 years. And so I think that that's a uniqueness that has been to our benefit. You know, when we went into Chicago, we didn't want to say, well, we found a really amazing person from Florida that we think can do all of the work. 
but not have any connection to the city that they would be working in. And so I think that the systems, the research, the uh, ways in which we train a dream director, those things are standard. Um, but every dream director, depending on the city, will have their own flavor because some people may have been great, let's say, in music or in um, motivational speaking of some sort. And then we'll have a dream director who's an amazing artist, like can actually draw uh, people and things like that. Or then we've had dream directors who have just started extremely massive movements. And so depending on what they're excited about, because that's another thing, which is one of the values of the Future Project, you have to be a dreamer in action. But not only can you just say you're teaching people to dream, but you need to be demonstrate ways in which you're dreaming as well. Like we, one of our uh, chief dream directors, um, she's been doing some amazing work in the hip hop space, specifically around journalism. Um, she just released a book. I don't know if you know Sarita, Dorita Gates, um, but she's from you're from Queens, and they're doing some really dope stuff with um, with uh, hip hop journalists in a way that they've uh, shaped the culture of hip hop with Source Magazine and Five Mics and all of that stuff. Mm. Hmm. Um, so what, what I want to do is is sort of pivot things a little bit. Um, but before I before I do that, and I'm just I'm just saying this because we're, we're running close on time. Um, what, what would you say is like yeah. the, the the biggest challenge um, ahead for for future project for dream directors, and then also for yourself? When I say dream directors, I just mean like locally within their respective cities, um, and then also for yourself. So for the future project, I mean, what we what we're faced with right now is the next iteration of the dream director. Like the dream director is actual human, so it's not something, right? Like you just you build. You have to find these people, and you have to find them in order to scale, right? If if the goal is the nation, which it is, we want everyone's passion and purpose to be unlocked. And so we have actually been testing different iterations of the dream director and creating platforms to keep students connected. So one of the things that we're pushing heavily right now is called Future Camp. And so we, we're doing um, East Orange, New Jersey this weekend, and then from East Orange to Baltimore, to Miami, to Atlanta, and then I think we head to the West Coast after that. But these are three-day experiences that are a discovery process, a fellowship process with students from across your school district that you wouldn't normally work with, and then a project process where that third day you're actually building that thing that you discovered you were really passionate about. And so I would say that that's the thing, right? Scaling in a sense that we can touch more than 50,000 students. Like how do you turn 50,000 to 500,000? And so that's something that we're facing. Um, for the dream director themselves, I think that always just trying to fine tune the work to make it as productive as possible because inside of a school you know how do we turn 25 students who were doing projects into 50 students that we were, do, were doing projects and one of the ways i know that we've been able to do that is by creating what we call a dream team and so those dream team members who've been in the future project become ambassadors and they're able to basically train other students to extend the hand of the dream director to to touch more students and work closely with more students and so that's always going to be a challenge because some schools have a thousand children. 
and how do we actually make sure that we're making an impression and doing that work with all 1,000 and not just, you know, 100. Um, yeah. Um, for me, um, for me in this work, I think that uh, the challenge is is becoming clearer to the nation as I travel to various conferences and meet with all types of principals from all different states, uh, races and backgrounds is for a very long time, we wouldn't acknowledge the elephant in the room that was social emotional learning. So many leaders just felt like, well, if I'm responsible for improving student achievement, then I don't really care about, you know, how this person feels or if they are, do they, if they have hope or, you know, what happened last night, we just need to make sure they pass this test. And um, I'm noticing that as a shift, and I wouldn't say that it's at 50%, I would say it was at 30% right now, which is why it's still a challenge. But so many more educators are embracing this concept that it's, it's, it's almost mandatory that we have time in our day to connect with students about something other than math, science, English, or history. And that's, I think that's gonna, that's going to be the shift in America's education when you're responsible for learning how to make decisions. When you're responsible for figuring out what it is that is near and dear to you. Or when you're beginning to learn how to train your mind to understand that though you may have walked past 12 just unrealistic circumstances on your way to school that you could change that by doing your own thing or figuring out what's what makes you happy what makes you light up um and sometimes students don't have that opportunity they think that what they see is as far as they're going to go and we need to shift that as early as possible mm. awesome man so w- do you have a couple more minutes yeah, yeah, I'm good. Okay, because I, I have a call coming up, but I, w- I want to jump through. Uh, typically, what we do towards the end is uh, quick fire. We have like these quick fire questions. I do want to say though that there's a lot more I kind of wanted to touch on, but we'll just have to do like a part two or something, <laughs> some some other some okay. other day. Um, uh, so the quick fire typically goes is about five questions. First thing we ask is like, who's your favorite rapper, Biggie or Tupac? And you, you give your answer and then some rationale. Is that cool? Okay. Awesome. Yep. All right. So, so first up, who's your uh, favorite rapper, Biggie or Tupac? That's a crazy question, man. <laughs> um, no, my <laughs> my my favorite rapper, though, if I had to choose one of the two, it would be Biggie. Um, so for a few reasons, um, I just associated with him more. I mean, me being on the East Coast, um, I got an opportunity to experience his work at a young age. Um, People would say that we had some of the same mannerisms, and literally, my nickname um, growing up is Biggie. So, <laughs> so um, that, and I just like the the charisma that he has with people, you know, um, with with his lyrical ability. And I just think that uh, we didn't get an opportunity to see him reach his full potential. And I think that's how you move mountains. Uh, I think Tupac had his way, which I enjoyed because. I feel like if we were making a comparison, like Tupac was prepared for violence, like at all costs, like it is going to be what it is. Where Biggie was always trying to like, yeah, man, I get it, you know, and we could still get move forward, but I don't know if everybody got to die type of thing. Right. So um, when I look at his interviews, those were the things that I, that resonated with me. 
was just like he just had a way about him that made people want to move uh and it didn't necessarily involve hurting anyone else but it still pushed the culture forward and so um that's that's why i enjoyed biggie got it you, you said that this is a, that was a crazy question what, what did you mean by that it's a crazy question because I'm like an avid hip hop listener. Like okay. You could have asked me, "Do I like Little Yachty and Little Uzi Vert?" And I would have been able to respond to that. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, as somebody who is into hip hop, it's hard to make a choice because I wouldn't say that Tupac isn't equally my favorite. Right. But because I have to make a decision, this is who I resonate with most. I respect it. I definitely respect it. Would you Would you consider yourself a hip hop historian? I do, I do. I don't know. I don't know if um, how far I can go back. Like I feel like uh, when I really got heavy into hip hop was more like Wu Tang Clan era, um, and uh, you know I I was familiar with Kumo D and LL Cool J and King Sun and you know MOP and all those people. But you know Mob Deep and all that. But I would say like when Wu Tang Clan came out, I was just like, yeah, this this is for me. Yeah. You know the things I didn't get into Wu Tang Clan fully until I listened to. I didn't appreciate it when it first came out. It wasn't until Ghostface Supreme Clientele came out that I that uh, I that I like. So what what is this? And then I went back and I, I realized what I've been missing. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> uh, you know, sometimes it just takes things. It takes some time for things to click. Um, yep. So the next question is: uh, What's what's a, a favorite book or favorite books? And that have been most impactful to you personally and or professionally? Um, the, the most impactful book that I've read uh, professionally was Reframing Organizations by Bowman and Deal. And it really just touches on business in general, how to reframe an organization to be successful. It really helped me with my transition in year two, three, and four in Shabazz uh, because it attacks specific frames, right? There's the structural frame that that exist that you have to do and what happens is when people are structured things get done but they also plateau and so then they talk about the humanistic frame and so how you have to engage anyone in the organization as a human being if you're going to expect them to prosper and rise and be better and then you have the political frame and so understanding that within these organizations that are complex that there is politics that play a part and you need to know how to navigate it and then the last frame is the symbolic frame that people connect to things and items and trophies and awards. And you want to make sure that those things are happening inside of any company in order for it to thrive and reach its highest potential. So that book was like mind blowing. Like when I read it, I was like, wow, I was doing some of this, but I, I would have been stuck if, if I didn't read it. Cause I would say that I'm a structuralist at heart, but I, I begin to understand the importance of symbolism human need and just like uh navigating the, the politics of any organization it, whether it be government education or or private business um a book that is was extremely powerful for me personally it was uh, by carter g woodson the miseducation of a negro and so like the, the major takeaway of that is the book being so dated but so relevant in today's uh, society and the talks about the way there is, you know, a black man who exits the community uh, and then uh, 
embraces a new community and looks down on his old community and how that impacts the whole process to improve the the uh community that he once existed in and so i thought like that was profound because it's typically what happens right we work so hard to get out of a specific neighborhood only to embrace other people that are not necessarily of the social status that we were once and we forget and so that's one of the things that was extremely important for me and like when i was able to get out of patterson new jersey um that i had to go back and so when i opened my first school it had to be in patterson because it was important for me that the young people that are coming up underneath me was able to experience me and i was able to provide them something that i thought why that i believe is going to get them to the right places and i mean he just unpacked so much like he even speaks on the idea of like um desegregation being a detriment to black people right because it forced us to build businesses it forced us to do specific things that we don't necessarily do in the same way anymore since everything has been uh desegregated um and again it's ideology so i wouldn't say i agree one way or another but i definitely had to step back and think about like hmm that there's definitely some truth to this <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, those, those, those are, those are, uh, two books that off the top of my head was just like, they changed my life. Awesome. I'm def- I have them, I have them up right in front of me. The, both of them, I've heard of Miseducation of the Negro. I've never actually, re- I don't think I've fully read it. I'm still trying to catch up on my Baldwin. Um, but, uh, this is, this is a good one to add to the, add to the repertoire. Um, yeah. All right. So next question is. What is a what's what's a favorite tool um, in your arsenal, personally and or professionally? Tool can be taken as literally or as figuratively as you like. I, 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 my my greatest tool is uh, my brain, um, and so the reason why I say that is because I meet a lot of people and I work on in a lot of high level conversations with people who are really successful and then people who aren't. Um, and what I realized is that I have this innate ability to, to get to a solution. And so no matter what you're saying to me or how complex it is, I am only trying to give responses that are solution oriented, which is like extremely powerful for me. And also, um, I was saying this to someone the other day that uh, I retain a lot of things that I read. Any Anything that I, I read or I ever talk about after I read it, it's like stuck. And so it really helps me in my skill set. And so, so like, you know, I can do things as simple as like type 85 words a minute or do things as, as like, as an educator, I can actually use Photoshop, design my own logos, or if it's social media, like I manage uh, most of my accounts or at least have ideas about how it should be run if certain things are happening. And so it's just like this plethora of skill sets that I've developed um, and being able to retain. So I would say my greatest tool for sure, whether it be problem solving or just like uh, trying to provide the best upbringing uh, from my son, for my son, is just like my brain. Awesome. Awesome. All right. So next question. Um, if you had, let's say you have, you, you, you have only $200 and you have two weeks to turn that $200 into $2,000, what do you do? Oh, I say um, I spend twenty nine dollars of it uh, 
to probably open like a Shopify account. Okay. Uh, you know, I'll do some drop shipping where it allowed me to basically offer a free product to a group of people that I don't need to pay for. They would need to purchase it and then I make money off of their purchase. Right. Uh, and then I would spend the remaining dollars on ads and promo on Google and Facebook and all the money that's generated, I'll continue to do that. And I think in two weeks, I'll definitely make 2000 <laughs> You know, I, I'm, I'm hip to dropshipping, but I, I'm going to be honest. I wasn't expecting you to say dropshipping. I, was I know, but you just want to talk about my brain. Like, <laughs> I have a skill set to do that stuff. <laughs> I was not expecting the education guy to, 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 to drop that. <laughs> I, was not, <laughs> I was not expecting that. Um, that's awesome. So last question. You're allowed one meal for the rest of your life. This is the meal you eat for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Um, what is your meal? And, and don't hold back on details. Give me, like, paint a picture. Yeah, I mean, this is, for me, if I had to eat one thing for the rest of my life, it'd be, and paint a picture, is uh, it's peanut butter and jelly. Peanut butter and jelly, <laughs> um, wheat bread, toasted. I can eat that forever and not feel <laughs> right and i can break it down right i could just play you know today is just gonna be peanut butter and then you know i'm you know tomorrow i'm just gonna do the jelly then i'm gonna do both you know or i can change the bread i don't know if that's allowed in this one meal thing um with uh with some water i'm good to go i respect that i respect that <laughs> peanut butter and jelly is not a, it's not a bad combo that's that's probably like the most 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 rudimentary answer I've, I've had and i don't mean that in a derogatory sense i mean that in like yeah 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 <laughs> it's it's so simple i'm simple man you gotta survive out here man <laughs> you don't know how the world is gonna be 30 years from now yeah. <laughs> well it's gonna be i think it's gonna be great I'm, I'm an optimist on that side it's gonna be spectacular yeah and i'll make sure i have the peanut butter and jelly on, on deck just in case though all right exactly <laughs> All right, man. Well, I, I want to say thank you so much for, for sharing some time with me. I, I learned a lot listening to you today. Um, as I mentioned, you know, there's a lot more I would love to touch on. So perhaps sometime in the future we can catch up again, um, especially like the the the, the uh, reframing of organization part you spoke to. I'd love to dive into like the structural elements, the human elements, the political elements, the symbolic elements as it relates to underserved communities. Um, yep. Because that's, that's something that's also near and dear to me. But all that being said, again, thank you. And I hope you had a good time. All right, I did, man.